Um, so anyways, I had this per persistent fear growing up, the fear of being left behind. Now, no, this wasn't the fear of my parents leaving me, let's say, in a crowded shopping mall or anything like that. I never feared that, and it never happened. No, this was a fear of so-called biblical proportions. You see, the rapture was all the rage in the church I grew up in. And now, if you're not familiar with what the rapture is, it's basically the idea that the second coming of Jesus includes this kind of secret snatching away of all the true born-again believers, allowing them to escape the wrath of God that is then poured out upon the earth during a period of time called the Great Tribulation. And it's only after this period of tribulation, where evil is then kind of allowed to run amok, that Jesus returns again, vanquishes all wickedness, and reigns over the world forever. This is the doomsday scenario that was depicted in the wildly popular Left Behind series. Some of you may have read some of those novels. Needless to say, it would not be an exaggeration at all to say that the culture of the church culture I grew up in was absolutely obsessed with this idea. It's all we heard about growing up, at least it seems when I think back about it. It was a frequent discussion in everything from Sunday school to youth group to Bible studies to Sunday sermons. I still remember the youth group watching A Thief in the Night, a movie from the 70s that Pat had mentioned uh, last week. And um, I, you know, they seemed to show it like every year or so, and you're know, invited to bring your friends and stuff like that to kind of... I don't know, scare you or something like that. In fact, at the end of, I don't know if it's this movie or the sequel, there's a very famous scene where there's a little kid who uh, is left behind and he's imprisoned and um, probably like an eight-year-old kid and then he goes out and he gets his head chopped off in a guillotine because he refuses to renounce his faith. How's that for evangelism? And that's just it. Far from the second coming being a, a source of hope or, or good news, it was all too often used as a tool to instill fear, to get people, quote-unquote, saved. In fact, I think as a kid, I came to experience it kind of like a threat because I was taught that if I happened to be willfully sinning at the time that Jesus returned, that there was a pretty good chance that I would not be caught up with the rest of the saints. And so as a result, the second coming carried with it for me a fear of divine abandonment. As I, as I reflected back on my experience, that's kind of what I came to, is that I had this fear of divine abandonment, of being left behind. Now, of course, this did become a source of some pretty funny pranks, the classic one being the pile of clothes arranged in such a way as to make one think that the person had disappeared. Now, why people thought that we would leave our clothes behind, I have no idea. Seems like kind of an odd concept, but whatever. Um, and on more than one occasion, I came home as a, as a kid to an empty house, and upon spotting a pile of dirty laundry out of the corner of my eye, I thought, oh, crap, I've been left behind. And so I'd search my house frantically for other signs uh, of rapture, usually to no avail, usually. Um, <laughs> And within a short time, fortunately, I would hear someone come in through the door and I'd breathe a big sigh of relief, recognizing that even if I had been left behind, at least I wasn't alone. Somebody else in my family had been left behind too. 
Well, today is the second Sunday in Advent, and Advent simply means coming, and and it's the church season that consists of the four weeks leading up to Christmas, where we celebrate, of course, the coming of Jesus. But as Pat mentioned last week, uh, in church tradition, Advent has always had a dual focus. While we look back to Jesus' first coming at Christmas on the one hand, we also look forward to his second coming at the restoration of all things. Well, this year we're using our Advent series to talk about the second coming because there are a lot of, we might say, confusing ideas about our hope for the world to come. Everything from what happens when we die to what we can expect when Jesus returns and what is to become of the world we live in. Here's the thing. What we believe about the future matters. It matters tremendously. It has real consequences for how we live our lives, for better or worse, as my experience growing up can attest to. So as we continue our series entitled All Things New, uh, I want to explore with you why I have come to believe that the second coming is truly good news. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this day that we've uh, set aside to gather together to worship, uh, to hear the scriptures taught, and to uh, make some space for your spirit to work in our lives. And so we commit this time to you, say, come Holy Spirit, and uh, work in both our hearts and minds, and, and, and continue to form us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray in name. Amen. So the passage we're going to begin with this morning is in Acts chapter 1. And uh, it takes place about five weeks after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared numerous times to his disciples during that time, spending time with them, no doubt continuing to teach them, as well as prepping them for his eventual departure. Meanwhile, the disciples at this point are probably getting a bit antsy because they are still working under the assumption that Jesus, especially now that he's been vindicated in resurrection, will do away with all evil, particularly the oppressive Roman Empire, and establish God's kingdom once and for all. And so they press him with a question. And it's with that question that we're going to uh, start reading in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. Luke writes this, Then they gathered around him, that is the disciples, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, suppose I told my wife and kids that I was going out for the afternoon to run some errands, and I give them each a kiss and a hug goodbye, and they watch me drive off in my car down the road. Well, as the afternoon wears on, uh, they begin to anticipate my return. Maybe they glance out the window at the street every once in a while to see if it's me coming down the road, or as my kids used to do when they were younger, they would hang out in the front yard or along the sidewalk, eager to catch the first sighting of my arrival or my wife's arrival if she was gone. 
And of course, they would be right to expect me to return in a similar manner that I had left. They would not expect me, for instance, to come riding down the street on a horse or a skateboard, although that would be pretty cool. No, it would be my car, the same car that I had left home in. See, my departure would form the basis for my expected arrival. And I suspect something similar could be said about Jesus' second coming. We need to first explore the manner in which he departed uh, so that we can understand his expected arrival. As the two men dressed in white told the disciples, which we just read, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go. Jesus' ascension, in other words, forms the basis for his expected advent. Unfortunately, the ascension appears a bit silly for modern sensibilities. The picture of Jesus lifting off into the clouds as maybe the world's first cosmonaut uh, seems a little cartoonish. And, And so understandably, a lot of people outside the church and many within the church as well have written it off as a pre-modern myth. However, I think there are two reasons I don't think that's necessary. First, we need to understand what the scriptures mean when they talk about heaven. And we've mentioned uh, bits and pieces of this before, but it bears repeating. Here's the thing. Biblically speaking, heaven is not some other location found somewhere high above our heads, particularly in the clouds or maybe in deep space. In biblical cosmology, heaven and earth are not two different locations, but rather what we might say are two different dimensions of creation. And these two dimensions closely relate to each other and intersect with one another in a whole variety of ways, even while they retain, for the moment at least, their separate and distinct distinct identities and roles. As Pat mentioned last week, the biblical endgame is not escaping uh, one location to another, going from earth to heaven, but rather the marriage or the union of heaven and earth so that there's no longer any separation between God's full reality and our reality. And of course, in this union, all creation will be finally and completely liberated and healed, all things made new. And so we can say in a very real sense that, in many ways, heaven is here. It's within reach. In fact, when Jesus began his ministry, what does he say all the time? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. At one point, he even says, it is within you. It is right. It's within our reach. It's not some location far away. That's the first thing. Second, the scriptures are replete with biblical metaphors. If we don't get this right, we don't read the Bible well. We need to understand when the Bible is speaking using metaphors. And when Luke speaks of Jesus being quote-unquote, taken up, he's using a metaphor that was very familiar with his original audience. It's similar to when we speak of a student moving up a grade. When we say that, we're not, we're not assuming that the student is now on the second floor of the school when they've moved up a grade. Rather, the student has moved from, say, sixth grade to seventh grade. It's a metaphor. Likewise, the cloud that hid Jesus from sight that he was taken up into is a symbol of God's presence. You can think of the pillar of cloud and fire as the children of Israel wandered through the desert or the cloud and smoke that filled the temple when God suddenly would become present in a very uh, new and powerful way. The 
Bible is, is full of, of metaphor that refers to God's presence like a cloud. So while the ascension of Jesus, I think, will always remain somewhat of a mystery, as many things in our faith are, the main point seems to be fairly clear. Jesus has gone into God's dimension of reality and will one day return when that dimension and our present one are brought together once and for all. This is why theologically we can say that that even though Jesus is not bodily present here with us, if you think of heaven and earth as two interlocking dimensions of reality, then even though we cannot see Jesus, we can still experience his nearness, his presence with us, albeit provisionally through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think this is also why the scriptures often speak of the second coming as his appearing. It's not as if he's traveling from one location to another, but rather the veil between heaven and earth is removed and he is revealed to us in all of his glory. For instance, in 1 John 3, we read, Dear friends, we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Or Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Even 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the passage is often used to justify the idea of the rapture when properly understood, taking into account the biblical metaphors we just talked about, conveys the same thing. And I want us to take a little bit closer look at that passage. This is... uh, Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 15. And and just to give you a little bit of a context here, Paul is addressing some people in the church at at Thessalonica who um, had experienced the loss of some loved ones and they were wondering how things were going to kind of play out um, in the future. And so he addresses that by saying this in verse 15. He says, According to the Lord's word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, in other words, who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And when he says rise first, he's referring to resurrection. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One of the key words in this passage is a Greek word, parousia. And it's usually translated as coming in our Bibles, but it literally means presence. And it had two uses in the time that Paul wrote this letter, both of which I think have have influenced its meaning as Paul uses it. The first meaning was it was used in Paul's time to refer to the mysterious presence of a god or divine being, particularly when the power of this god was revealed in healing. So when someone experienced divine healing, they would talk about it as the parousia. The second meaning emerges when a king or an emperor visited a colony or province. The word for such a visit was parousia, or royal presence. Now, suppose that Paul wanted to say two things to the church. First, suppose he wanted to say that while Jesus was near in spirit, while you could experience his 
his presence provisionally by the Spirit, he was absent in body. But one day he would again be present, absolutely revealed, being present in body. And at that time, the whole world, themselves included, would know the sudden transforming power and healing of his presence. The word that would be used would be parousia. And then, suppose that Paul also wanted to say that Jesus, who'd been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father, was the rightful Lord of the world, the true emperor by whom all others would bend the knee. And that one day he would appear and rule in person with everything that rule represents. Again, the natural word to use here would be the word parousia, royal presence. In fact, when an emperor did make a visit to a particular colony or province, it was customary for the citizens to actually leave the city, to go down the road and meet the emperor as he was arriving, and then escort him back to their city. And that's the exact imagery that Paul is drawing on when he speaks of followers of Jesus meeting him in the air, so to speak. It's not to be whisked away, but it's rather to escort him back. To where we are. See, the point, unlike the rapture, is that no one is being snatched away from earth to heaven. But rather, when heaven and earth are finally united, when the veil between God's world and ours has finally and completely lifted, Christ will appear, or we might say will be fully revealed to us, and we will experience the transforming power of his presence as all of creation is healed, made whole, and made new again. Now that is good news. See, contrary to what I was taught growing up, the second coming is not meant to catch us unawares, to expose us, to shame us. It's not a threat to keep us on our Christian toes. Rather, it is a moment of amazing healing and reconciliation that will finally allow us to live completely in authentic love. That is good news, and it is a great hope for us, which is why they call the second coming the blessed hope. You know, there's an experience that Kat and I sometimes create when we mentor couples uh, in marriage that I think captures a kind of a sense of what that appearing might be like for us. What we'll often do as we're teaching communication skills to couples is we'll set out two chairs like this, um, and we'll have each person sit in one of the chairs, so you've got one person facing the back of the other, and the other person with their back turned toward their partner. And what we'll do at this point is we'll have them share what we call a confiding exercise, which simply means that they'll share an appreciation or a feeling or something like that. Now, this experience, of course, is meant to feel a bit awkward and disconcerting especially for the one who has their back completely turned to, toward the other. You know that your partner's near you. You can almost sense or feel their presence. You can speak to them. They can speak to you. You can hear their voice. And yet you clearly feel distant and disconnected, lacking any real sense of intimacy. But then what we'll do is we'll then have this person turn, turn their chair so it's perpendicular to the other one. And now they have a slightly different vantage point. 
Now they can see their partner out of their peripheral vision, or they can simply turn their head and they can kind of catch a glimpse of them. And we'll have them do the same thing. We'll have them share a confiding exercise, an appreciation, or share some feeling with them. And this time, it's still a bit disconcerting because there's still there's a little bit of separation. One person's got their shoulder turned to the other one. There's still this, this little bit of a disconnect. There's not full intimacy that is experienced at this point. But finally, we'll have them turn their chairs so they're facing face-to-face, knee-to-knee, knees touching, and hand-in-hand. And when we do this, often before any person even shares a word, you can see a change in their countenance. You can see something just kind of drop or break. You see their, their faces light up as that which they've been longing, so desperately longing for has been finally revealed to them. This, this amazing, complete presence to one another and intimacy. In fact, I still remember this one couple who we did this with, and upon coming face to face, they both just began weeping. Because this is what they've been looking for. And I would say that that is an experience of parousia. In fact, in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, we have his majestic poem on love in chapter 13. It's used It's the first part is used in a lot of weddings. And at the very end, he writes this. He says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Perusia. See, for now... Our experience of Jesus is somewhat limited. Like the couple sitting front to back like this. You know, picture Jesus in this chair and, and we're, we're like this. And there are times where, you know, we can, we can know that he's near, can kind of sense his presence. We can speak to Jesus. We can oftentimes hear Jesus speak to us and yet there's this feeling of disconnection disconnection and distance, lacking full intimacy. There's still a need for healing in our lives, for genuine love, for the transforming power of intimate presence, and we long for this. Whether we recognize it or not, we really deep down inside long for this, and yet it it seems to remain out of reach. And then at other times, we get a real taste for that which we long for, kind of like when the chair is turned like this. We catch a glimpse of Jesus, even if momentarily, maybe in the face of another or or in a moment of worship or deep, silent presence. You know, we might experience radical healing in our lives, a love like no other. It's as if the parousia has broken into this present age momentarily, but as we know, it's often fleeting. It doesn't last. We'll get sick again. Loved ones will still pass away. The struggle still continues. But when he appears, Paul writes, then we shall see face to face. And in that moment, I can imagine like that couple, we too might begin to weep as that which we desperately long for is finally and fully revealed to us. We shall know fully 
even as we are fully known. Complete intimacy, freed to love authentically, all things made new. See, once again, Jesus appearing, his, his full revelation is not something to be feared. It's not a threat. You will not be abandoned. Not only is he near, even now, within reach, his face is always turned toward you. There is never a moment when he turns his chair on you, when he turns his back on you. And I want you to hear that and receive that that his face is always turned toward you. There's a very real sense in which Jesus is here, right now, in this moment, and his face is turned toward you. If we could see, if we could peer beyond that veil, That's what we'd see. I believe that. We would see his face turn toward us. I believe that Jesus' coming advent is an invitation for us to turn toward him, to take his hand, begin to experience that for which we so long for. Again, when Jesus began his ministry, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent simply means to change your mind or, or, or to turn around, to turn toward him. It's not a threat, <laughs> as it's often been taught. You know, repent or else. No, it's the kingdom is within reach. Can you almost taste it? Can, can you sense it? Turn toward Jesus. In Revelation 22, some of the last words in the scriptures are this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Like the king who's coming, let's go out and meet with him. Turn toward him. Take his hand in anticipation of the day when we will truly see face to face, in anticipation of the day when all things are made new. Amen?